The following content is sponsored in partnership with Haymarket Media US. Today's McKnight's Market Leaders Podcast, sponsored by Matrix Care. Skilled nursing has been kind of at the bottom rung, I think, on the healthcare continuum for a long period of time. And we've really climbed up higher on the hierarchy of care delivery over the last several years. And I think you're going to continue to see that. There is always going to be a need for that additional level of care, that one-on-one relationship, that greater set of acuities to be dealt with, which cannot happen within the home. Welcome to another edition of the McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders Podcast, where industry experts share their insights and seeds of success are planted. I'm McKnight's Executive Editor, Jim Berkland, and I'm here with Todd Mahaffey, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Trilogy Health Services, and Bharat Montero, General Manager for the Senior Living and Long-Term Care Business for Matrix Care. We're here to talk about a very important topic, business diversification. Whether it's developing new levels of service or expanding clinical care offerings, we're going to learn about how changing models of care and long-standing personnel structures can boost an operator's reputation and bottom line. So first of all, welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jim. Well, I'm looking forward to today's discussion. So why don't we jump in right away? And Brad, I'm going to go to you first. What industry trends and challenges are influencing the need for long-term care facilities to diversify and expand their services? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and so I'll be responding from a technology provider's hat. As I look at our customer base, the diaspora is changing significantly. The senior population and the need for long-term care is growing significantly. And with the onset of regulatory changes, the changes in reimbursement, we're finding that our customers are beginning to look at a variety of different services to meet the needs of the customer, but also provide care in a profitable and successful manner. And so as a technology company, we have to adapt to those needs and changes that our customers are going through. Very good. Now, Todd, from the provider's point of view, what about you? What are you seeing? I think uh, it's about control for us, Jim, in, in a lot of ways. The payer models have changed so much in the last three years. Medicare uh, Advantage has taken over traditional Medicare and fee-for-service payers have gone away. And because of that, lengths of stay are shortening and uh, outside conveners are helping dictate levels of care and lengths of stay. And so the more control that we can exude over the resident experience inside of our campuses, uh, the better, provided that they're, they're good control controls for outcomes for our residents. So we're seeing a lot of uh, shift in how how we do business and how we've had to diversify our business. It's much different than what it has been over the last 20 years. And that's just in one phase for payer models. But I think supply and demand in itself is just going to change uh, uh, our, our models and <clears throat> expand our services. We are trying to be more things to more people um, now than what we've ever been before. We're no longer a convalescent uh, nursing facility. And that's been changing quite a bit over the last 20 years, but I think even more so now in these next 10 years, it's gonna be imperative that we've diversified and able to meet a broader uh, base of needs in our residents' daily lives. Sure, and and now we know demographics are a big influence, but Bharat, are there any regulatory changes or policy developments that you see driving this? 
Yeah, I mean, the latest one that is on everybody's kind of mind are the, some of these staffing mandates that uh, CMS is talking about, right? So if you just double click on just a staffing mandate, it puts more pressure on the care provider, on Todd and his business. And so as a technology partner, we're saying, okay, what are things that we can do to put more time back in the hands of the caregivers so that we can make care delivery more efficient, right? So it's a it's a real give and take relationship where something from the outside influences one of us and the other one has to react. Um, so that's one example from a, from a regulatory standpoint. We also know about reimbursement. We are moving away from uh, fee for service to more about value-based care, right? So that also means now from a provider perspective, being able to look at the whole, how much monies are available, what is my cost of care, and how do I demonstrate that the value I'm providing deserves a particular level of reimbursement and keeping that level going or increasing is, is super important. So I think those are two big regulatory things that really are pushing both technology companies, but also providers to look at things differently and diversify in their service offerings, in, in how they deliver care and how they uh, select technologies for that to come, come to fruition. Okay, Todd. So what regulatory changes and or policy developments are, are you really keeping an eye on? Broad hit the nail on the head. The staffing mandate is uh, first and foremost in the entire industry's mind right now. It's going to be difficult with the shrinking workforce over the last five years or so, four years post-pandemic, and uh, not having enough registered nurses in the workforce to be able to meet the current needs, let alone an enhanced need with uh, minimum staffing requirements. And by the way, Jim, most people in our industry would say that they're for uh, staffing requirements. Um, I think that we all believe in having some form of minimum staffing requirements and, and quality outcomes for our residents. But understanding that not all campuses are exactly the same and some are really truly post-acute and almost LTAC-like in their delivery models and others are convalescent or memory care. Uh, and, and those models don't require RNs the same way as a post-acute model would. So um, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle that we've got to get over over the next couple of years and, and how we articulate that. But I think Broad also hit it on the head with how we leverage technology in our space and how we utilize platforms like Broad's to give nurses and CNAs more time at the bedside, right? Getting that as efficient as possible where we're not doing as much rote charting where that can be a little bit more intuitive and follow through in a, an electronic fashion as opposed to uh, having the nurse sit there document on paper. Those days are gone. We need them to be more effective at the bedside. So so that partnership is is paramount in how we move forward uh, with that regulatory change. No now, doubt. And also, also with Jim, though, on the staffing mandate, I think last thing is, is the facility assessment. That's going to be paramount. I think everybody's really focusing heavy on the staffing component but the facility assessment is going to be a pretty significant hurdle for us to get over in that same bill. And how we do that uh, through our own EMR and our own medical records and our own assessment skills at the campus level is going to be uh, germane to being successful with that new regulatory requirement. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, that facility assessment is going to hit earlier than some of these levels that you're targeting, correct? Now, I'd like That's to right. switch gears just a little bit. Todd, uh, how do you see the industry adapting to the increase in demand for home-based care services and what role do providers play in this literally evolving landscape? 
Well, I've done this for a long time, Jim, and skilled nursing has been kind of at the at the bottom rung, I think, on the healthcare continuum for a long period of time. And we've really climbed up higher on the on the hierarchy of um, care delivery over the last several years. And I think you're going to continue to see that we are proving that we can deliver better care than home care, quite frankly, in our skilled nursing facilities. We have 24 hour staffing. We have RNs. We have LPN CNAs. Uh, and a host of specialized programs. So where we've seen managed care companies and our MedAdvantage payers trying to shorten length of stay and push residents and, and clients into the home care environment, we've also seen that swing back the opposite way where they've come back to us in the skilled nursing environment because uh, their needs just can't be met at home. In addition to that, what we just talked about with the staffing crises, it's, it's a lot easier to staff in a campus than what it is to staff for one patient in a home and try to travel out to meet that caseload. So uh, there's always going to be a place for home care, and they're great partners for us, um, but it really should be what it's intended for, a step down, trying to get the patient and the resident to the next lower level of care and back to their home as quickly and safely as possible and allow that to be uh, the glide path back into the community for them. Very good. Bharat, your view on home-based care? Yeah, so I think um, we're definitely seeing in general a trend that is indicating more preference for home-based care. Uh, But I would agree with Todd. I think people love to age in their homes, uh, in in environments that they're familiar with and receive care there, but there's only so much you can do. There is always going to be a need for that additional level of care that that one-on-one relationship, that um, greater set of uh, acuities to be to be dealt with, which cannot happen within the home. As we scout the industry, you know, there are some organizations or some companies that believe we can bring all of SNF into home. I, I don't believe that. I think, I think uh, if anything, there is a need for the advanced or skilled nursing facilities. I think that's going to grow. I think the level of acuity that is catered in that environment is going to increase. Um, And so again, how can we enable providing that longitudinal view of of the patient so that when a resident needs to go in for advanced care, for skilled nursing care, um, the operators have all of that, they can provide the care in the quickest amount of time, the most efficient amount of time, and then bring that resident patient back into their residence, right? So there will always be that additional need for um, uh, home care, but I believe that skilled nursing is getting more advanced. It needs to uh, grow even further, and there's, there's, there's a huge place for that in tomorrow's world. Very good. Todd, let's get into this topic of diversification now. Let's drill down. What specific new levels of service or clinical care offerings have your facilities recently introduced or maybe you're planning to introduce? Wow. Um, the, the list is... is- I don't say long, but it's we've we've tackled this quite a bit over the last couple of years. Probably the biggest or most significant implementation that we've made is in-house dialysis. We have five in-house dialysis centers running today inside of our campuses. And let me be clear, these are dialysis units. They're not dens. We did not subcontract these with a third party. We did this on our own. It's our own staff, our own employees, our own dialysis machines, uh, our own capital investment. So it's significantly different uh, than than what we've seen in some of our competitors' models. Uh, We wanted that control. We wanted to be able to own the unit itself. Now, for us, that... Gym is not in direct competition with dialysis 
partners inside the community or our hospital partners. We really are doing that as an event for to provide services for residents that can't go back and forth to dialysis or that are just starting their dialysis that. Uh, journey and then discharge home and, and register at a, their freestanding dialysis center in their community. So it really is a, is a nice bridge uh, from a clinical offering that's not been done in the past. And again, unique to Trilogy in that that we own it and it's our own staff, I think is, is key to us. Uh, we wanted that level of control. We've also done a few different programs with hospitals where we've done dedicated stroke units uh, with joint ventures with hospitals. And, and I think a lot of providers would say that they have programming like that, but we actually dedicated beds, had the hospital come in and help us design equipment, layout rooms, remodeled, and did a significant capital investment for that. And, and that has been a very good venture for us and assist the hospital in getting those residents out a little earlier. Uh, and most importantly, Importantly, though, provides a great continuity of care between the hospital and the skilled nursing environment so that the physician at the hospital that's treating them for the stroke has written a program and nomograms and, uh, and care models for us at our campus as well. And that follows the patient through their transition and then ultimately to home with home care um, and back to their community-based physician. So those types of programs have positioned us, I think, very well uh, for the future and, and not just being a standard skilled nursing facility providing PT, OT, and ST the way that skilled nursing has always done. We've really gotten much more complex in our medical models over the last few years. Outstanding. Outstanding. Now let's go right to the core of what matters. Can you tell us some success stories? I know there are many, maybe many, but maybe just a few of residents who have benefited from this type of thing. And uh, what type of feedback do you get from the residents and their families? Well, for dialysis is, is a good example. It, you know, our intention was for that, that dialysis center, our first one um, is in the Indianapolis market, but was for that group of residents and patients to come in, be dialyzed, go home and start dialysis back in their community. Many times we're seeing where they want to continue to outpatient dialyze at our facility versus going to their local dialysis unit. We find that as, as a great success story that they like our nursing, they like our staffing, they like the comfort of our, our dialysis unit. Um, and that is a little self-defeating because we don't want that chair to be consumed by somebody who would come in and, and occupy a bed and a chair. Um, but we've provided that service until we can get them onto another service. I, I think the component that I mentioned about our stroke program, the big win there is the entire system, Jim. What we hear from our hospital partners is that a half a day link to stay matters. And when we have a very specified rote program, the hospital wins. We can take that resident and that patient out of the hospital that much faster, that much sicker, and do that a half a day sooner for them. The patient benefits, and we're seeing that and literally every single patient that comes through that unit benefits because their care model is already predetermined. And they get to go home a little bit faster from our unit because it's a little bit more intensive than us trying to milk out, you know, 40, 50 days in a length of stay. You know, they're coming in for a two or three week length of stay and heading back home, sometimes with home care, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, and sometimes back to their, to their, um, to the hospital's outpatient rehabilitation unit itself. Um, so those are the types of wins that we're seeing, but ultimately, um, it is about reducing the stress on the system, um, getting patients out of the hospital a little sooner, 
holding them to an appropriate level at our campus where sometimes we may see a day or two longer in length of stay, but we see a lower episodic cost of care for the entire stay for the patient. Um, and then getting them back to a higher level of functioning in the community. When we do our job right, we have a very high degree of predictability of what that patient's success level will be in the community. And our goal, as much as we love our, our residents and our patients, we don't want to see them again, not for the same thing. Uh, we want to get them home healthy and back to their prior level of functioning. Outstanding. That's, uh, I've said that numerous times personally. Hey, Doc, great to see you. I hope I don't see you soon again, right? That's, That's right. That's right. Now, now, you've touched on something, and Barada, I hope you can help us out on this, is that these are great ideas, but they don't come without challenges. Uh, so what do you see primary financial considerations and challenges might be uh, for providers when they are expanding offerings? It's a couple of different things. In our recent experience working with customers uh, that are expanding their services, and rightfully so, the EHR is the backbone of the technology uh, ecosystem, if you will. With those customers where we have partnered in advance and are aware of those areas we're going in, we're able to kind of be that partner that they deserve and they need as they go and take on these new services. So I think right off the bat, one of the challenges is the timing of when we include the technology partner so that we can collectively achieve the outcomes we desire, right? The second part then is, I think you touched upon the financial considerations. One of the reasons that many of the long-term care providers are expanding is to meet the needs of the customers, the, the patients which are changing, but also to diversify the revenue stream given the pressures they are feeling in terms of reimbursement and, and changes to reimbursement. And so the long-term care industry historically has not invested in technology as much as perhaps the acute care industry. I think the statistic that we've collected is somewhere between 2 and 3% for most organizations. I think uh, Trilogy definitely invests more it's a it's a uh, uh, technology leader and a benchmark, if you will. But in general, um, not investing enough in the technology to kind of help augment the additional solutions or or service lines they are pursuing is could also be a big challenge. Very good. Now, Todd, uh, I would like to know firsthand about some of the ex challenges, experiences, and what you recommend. And what type of investment, both in terms of uh, infrastructure and staff, have been really necessary to improve your offerings? Infrastructure is always there and capital in our space is, has been hamstrung just by ownership structure in our industry with triple net leases and most providers not owning the space in which they operate within a trilogy because we have our REIT, uh, we were able to reinvest and we own a great deal of our properties. And so for us, it's a, it's a little different game plan uh, from, a, from a capital investment inside of our campuses, which gives us a little bit more opportunity to explore those items. But I think the biggest investment, Jim, has been staffing. That is where we are unabashedly an employee first company. And people sometimes bristle when you say that. And, and I think I would say that I spent the first 26 years of my career saying patient first and this patient is at the center of everything we do. And I think I've really learned over the last couple of years and Trilogy has gotten this right, that we've root caused past that to, to uh, employee first and our best employees give the best care, which in turn is the best outcome for the resident. And, and so 
our biggest investment has been in our employees, uh, be it in staffing levels and adding staffing or just overall investment in our caregivers and our frontline caregivers wages. Did a very significant wage investment this past year of about seven and a half million dollars that was only done for compression to get our incumbent employees paid more so that we could raise our starting wages because we see that often in our space uh, where you are hiring at higher rates than people that have been with you for years. So we want to correct that. And so in order to keep our long-term employees happy, we made a very significant investment in that in this past year. We'll continue with that. We also do what we call quarterly wage investments where uh, our line staff and our hourly staff don't wait for the end of the year to get their annual increase. We do that every quarter at the first of every quarter. It's like clockwork uh, where they get a percentage added to their salary every quarter. It does a couple of different things. One, it's accretive for our employees. And two, uh, there's a guarantee. They don't have to wait till the end of the year to know if we are or are not going to pay it. Every quarter, they're getting a piece of that raise. And those are the types of investments I think that we've made very strongly towards our frontline caregivers. And, and even as early as this morning, we had a compensation strategy meeting. Our goal has been getting to a livable wage. First, it was $15 an hour. Now it's $18 an hour, right? So how do you get to where your lowest empl- paid employee is making $18 an hour? And I think for Trilogy, that is something we're very proud about that we put all of our efforts towards that that caregiver in our campus and our campus staff, uh, that investment helps us fuel the ability to add different service offerings into our campuses. Um, it's plain and simple. It's employee first. Outstanding. Outstanding. Now, Bharat, we have to look at another aspect of this. What role should technology play in the industry's efforts to diversify and enhance clinical care? And are there any specific technological trends that are gaining traction? Wow, that's a, that's a pretty big question. How much, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> well, I will limit you. You know, we want to let the listeners go eventually, but uh, let's hear. I mean, you must be seeing some important things out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, again, if you go back to the industry and the state of the industry, we know there's an aging population. We know there's a demand for uh, senior and elder care. We know that the acuity of the patients coming in is increasing. All of that indicates that um, there is a need for more care on one side. But the other side, we dealt with, we talked about earlier in this podcast about the, the external pressures, whether it's staffing, whether it's uh, reimbursement, whether it's change in the way reimbursement takes place. And then we talked about the diversification. I think the common thread, um, and I love what Todd said about putting employee first, it's the employees that keep all of this together and, and ensuring that we can be successful. But how do you make the employees successful? Obviously, paying them good wages is one of them, but making their jobs easier by helping them really go away from the mundane tasks, the the repetitive tasks, the administrative tasks, and focus more on truly why they are there, which caring for the patient, caring for the resident. How can we do that? That's where I believe technology plays a very, very huge part. We're all familiar with you know the AI, ML, chat GPD, and we throw all of those terms around, um, but the ability to leverage artificial intelligence, machine learning, automation, and say, hey, if I know that this particular task is happening all the time, 
Can I automate that? Can I leverage voice dictation so that the, the CNA doesn't have to be running around from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. before they get a break to go and actually type in what they did so that the reimbursement can occur, right, as an example. So I think um, technology is going to play a significant part in this industry. Uh, I really believe that organizations that embrace technology and want to innovate are going to really take the lead versus those who are kind of in a wait-and-watch mode. So investments in technology, the, the role of uh, artificial intelligence and, and robotic process automation, and very importantly, interoperability. You know, Todd talked about diversifying into dialysis. We have other customers that are diversifying into radiology services or lab services. All of these services are occurring around a particular patient. So how do you make sure the data flows seamlessly between these different services so that at any given point, that service provider has the holistic view of that particular patient, right? So interoperability and the seamless flow of data is also extremely critical uh, to this industry. And those are the areas that we are focused on. Got it. Now, uh, Todd, what do you think? Does Barad have that right? I was I, I was going to plug Matrix Care Connect and interoperability, but I think he did it for me. But um, that piece is really important, Jim. It is. We have a lot of different platforms and we have a lot of different data coming into our campuses. And the way we get those that conduit coming into our campus, and, and he said this early on, the EMR is it really is this is the spine of our of our system, right? It is what tells the entire story of our resident. And when you've got multiple chapters of that story coming in from outside sources, that interoperability component is germane to our success. Otherwise, it becomes very cumbersome and maybe even duplicative uh, in services because we can't get the data where we want it. So we think that Matrix Care Connect uh, looks really promising and, and um, how we pull other platforms in and, and make our experience more seamless. And, and as Bharat said, I think leveraging that technology to give our caregivers uh, more care at the bedside, that's I think first and foremost, but then just a better work experience, right? They don't want, they didn't go to nursing school to do mundane administrative tasks. They went to nursing school because they want to be caregivers and healers and uh, them not doing those mundane repetitive tasks or even just um, duplicating documentation, I think is very important. So, so that interoperability piece that Matrix Care Connect should help us bridge, I think, is paramount uh, to, to the next level of success for us. Sure thing. Now, Bharat, I wanted to get in there. You mentioned the artificial intelligence aspect of this. Mm -hmm. Can you get a little more specific? How do you think AI is going to influence the way providers deliver care in the future? Yeah, I think uh, now you've, you've got me, you're going to get me on my soapbox. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> going back to the fundamentals, right? A lot of people throw the buzzword artificial intelligence. Uh, artificial intelligence is the ability of melding together the way the human brain could think, but also extreme amounts of data to, to be able to predict, to able to identify patterns and then predict uh, potential outcomes, right? And so let's use a very simple example. About nine, nine, 10 months ago, we leveraged over 150 data points from the EHR, and we were able to identify a change in acuity of a particular patient that increases their risk of falling, right? 
And so over the last about eight months, 200 different customers have begun to pilot this out. And I'm really proud to report that in the last six months, these same customers, if you go back and look, this group of customers collectively had about 42,000 falls uh, prior. But after using this artificial intelligence tool that identified a change in acuity and the risk of a patient falling, they were able to reduce it collectively by 8%. We have one of our customers that has gone on record to say that in the last six months, they've avoided 1,000 falls, right? That's just one example of falls. And, you know, Todd knows very well, the cost of a fall can be really significant. And of those 3,700 falls that were saved in this in this space, about 10% of them were major falls. Some of them might have resulted in a death, right? Uh, so falls is one example from uh, looking at data points. But now that we can pick up change in acuity, we're looking at those factors that are actually driving um, change in mood that is a great indication for the onset of depression, as an example, right? Um, we're looking at other things that could change patient outcomes by looking at the change in acuity. Let's pivot over and talk a little bit about, okay, artificial intelligence, what about in other areas? Staffing, the, here's an hypothesis. If employees are happier, if they are paid well, if they are showing up on time, if they're documenting their work correctly, if they're uh, not necessarily owing, working excessive hours of overtime, the hypothesis is they probably are not going to leave, right? If we believe in that hypothesis, well, we have all the data. We know the quality of documentation of a particular caregiver in the EHR. We know when they clock in and when they clock out. We know how many hours of overtime. We know their wages. Now you have a pattern to identify and say, hey, we believe that these caregivers are probably at a higher risk of leaving than another group of caregivers. And what can we do about it? Maybe there's a conversation to be had, right? So example one was in the clinical space around falls and depression. Example two is around um, uh, the staffing and, and attrition around staffing. And again, I can go on. We can talk about um, how do you look at patients that are coming into a facility, right? Not all facilities are created equal, whether in terms of bed capacity, in terms of capabilities that they have to deliver care. And the last thing you want is a patient to come in only to realize that, oops, I cannot service this patient correctly or care for the patient correctly. And now they have to be transferred somewhere else. Well, if we can apply artificial intelligence upfront and match the perfect patient to the perfect facility, so care outcomes can be almost predicted and guaranteed, now we're beginning to change the game, right? So again, without giving away the whole shop, I think those are areas that we're really focused on. We have a multiple, you know, multiple proof points already. We announced a couple of these at our user conference, and, and these are the ones we're going to be piloting uh, starting January. Well, really outstanding stuff. I think it's clear to see why you're considered a leader in your field there, Bharat, because you, you really had some thought-provoking things that I'll bet most providers aren't realizing the whole expanse because you said you're, there are even more things to consider there. So given the successes that both of you have described here, I'm curious, what other emerging oh, healthcare or demographic trends do you think are going to be the most important to attack relatively new in the next few years? Bharat, I'd like to ask your opinion first. Yeah, um, I think 
the most important thing right now is going after the staffing crisis, right? Um, again, to Todd's point earlier, I think most operators, most providers do support that. But the reality is the physical bodies and people don't exist, right? And so we can we can work with the CMS, we can work with universities to kind of find more people, et cetera. But if we can make the delivery of care far more efficient, I think that's a massive thing to go after. Uh, so for us, priority one is helping our customers just deal with the shortage in staffing um, and the staffing mandates. And what can we do to kind of improve quality of care? And the second one is interoperability. Again, um, as customers, as providers begin to expand services, as patients flow between care areas, it is just so imperative that having data available when they need it, where they need it, in the format they need it is so critical. So I think, I know you asked about a kind of next five years, but I think this is the immediate horizon if we solve for these two and we solve them really well, I believe it'll open up significantly more opportunities for, for more technology, for more collaboration and, and for things to come. Okay. Well, Todd, I can't imagine you're going to disagree on the staffing angle of that or maybe even the other one too. So I'm going to make it a little bit tougher on you. Uh, maybe a few lines, but what do you see maybe perhaps after this staffing, if it can be, uh, the situation can be overcome. What are you looking at as future trends to, to keep an eye on? I think um, reimbursement is going to be another piece, another component for all of this. Not not just pay us more, pay for quality. You know, <laughs> what we're seeing now in quality-based initiatives and uh, how states have taken on those quality-based initiatives, I think is a huge trend. And you're going to see that across the country. And quality will pay. And our case, the winner is the resident. Better outcomes, better metrics, fewer falls, fewer in-house acquired wounds, infections, returns back to the hospital, all those pieces. The ultimate winner in that event is the resident. But uh, being reimbursed for that because we're doing a better job, I think, is, is great. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that trending over the next few years. We're seeing that now in, in the states in which we operate here in the Midwest. So I think reimbursement is going to be paramount. And if they, you know, on the staffing component, they're going to have to figure out a way to pay for that or pay for staffing to occur. Uh, there's just got to be more schools and more registered nurses being pumped out of our education system than what we have today. Other things on the other next five to 10 years, Jim, are going to be just the clinical acuity. You think about, I've done this for almost 30 years, which kind of makes my voice quiver when I say that out loud. But um, uh, you, you think about the days of being a sleepy convalescent facility and now running dialysis units and wound care programs and ventilator programs in some states and, and different acuity levels that the skilled nursing industry has, has tackled and done very well in our space. Um, I, I think that clinical acuity is going to continue to come, right? You don't really know what the next... A uh, big thing is going to be on that horizon 10 years from now, I think, uh, is a long way out. But over the next five years, we've got to deliver very strongly on taking sticker patients faster and being able to rehabilitate them quicker and to a higher level of, of um, predictable outcome and back to the community. That is what the system is going to demand. And uh, I think those that can do that very well will be very well positioned over the next five to 10 years. Those who want to continue to play that length of stay game and just kind of 
get paid for doing the same old thing, I think is, is going to be a, a struggle. We're, we're going to have to partner with with our ACOs, with our hospitals, with our payer types, and and ultimately the resident, get them the best value for their their dollar. And um, that to me is is paramount to success in this space. The other thing that I believe over the next five to ten years, uh, two two things. One is with more data being generated there's going to be a huge demand for this data, both from a provider standpoint, insurance standpoint, the patient's family standpoint, right? So people are going to be wanting to access the data for a variety of different things. So I think that's something both the provider and the technology company should be thinking about. How do you ensure that the right data, which is specialized the right way, is available to the right person without the bad actors in the timely manner and what controls exist, right? That's going to be super important. But I think the second other point I'd like to kind of throw out there is with the change in acuity that Todd mentioned and, and patients and, and people who are demanding care, having multiple different things that they need care for, there's also this the dissemination of information out there today. The joke is a patient when they're talking to a doctor could be talking to a neurosurgeon and they would challenge a neurosurgeon because on their phone, Google said, right? And so when we have these patients coming in, uh, I envision, you know, with that dissemination of information, the quality of care and information being delivered to the patient, to the patient's family, there's going to be a higher need and higher sophistication of that. Because guess what? Everybody has a chat GPT. Everybody has a Google and they're going to be asking more advanced questions of the caregiver and they're going to be making decisions based on how uh, the, the how the responses are, right? So I think that's a really interesting element we all should be thinking about. Uh, how do we not just deliver care, but how do we, you know, explain what we're doing in the same way because they can find the information on the phone, right? Well, I'll tell you what, that brings up a fantastic point. I just have to thank both of you, Todd, Barat, very much. And, you know, forget Google. You guys really illustrated, come to the McKnight's Market Leaders podcast to find out what's what. You guys have really hit it out of the park today. I want to thank you. We've been speaking with Todd Mahaffey and Bharat Montero. Thank you for listening to this edition of the McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders podcast. We look forward to seeing you again. For McKnight's, I'm Jim Berklin, wishing you good health and outstanding days ahead. <music>